This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Start with the Emergencies Act passed by the House of Commons. The Justin Trudeau government's emergency response to the truck blockades in Ottawa and elsewhere in Canada. The trucks are gone from Ottawa. The borders are open. But Trudeau says the emergency continues. The Emergencies Act is still required. We've got a great panel standing by, a Liberal MP, Conservative MP. And first, have a listen to this. Here's Justin Trudeau speaking yesterday. In a democracy, you can protest. You can share your opinion at the top of your lungs. You can disagree with elected officials. You can certainly disagree with me. But you can't harass your fellow citizens who disagree with you. You can't hold a city hostage. You can't block a critical trade corridor and deprive people of their jobs. Okay, the NDP supported the Liberals to pass the Emergencies Act last night. The Conservatives voted against. Here's Conservative leader Candace Bergen. Canadians can't be expected to simply take this Prime Minister at his word. His plans are not consistent with fundamental freedoms. The government should not have the power to close the bank accounts of Canadians on a whim. All right, let's discuss now with my guests. We've assembled a great panel for you. Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP for Surrey Centre, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, uh, Mike. Uh, Appreciate a lot. Also on the line is Tim Upple, Conservative MP, Edmonton Mill Woods. Tim, thank you for doing this today. Thank you, Mike. Great to join you and great to join Randeep. Okay, it's great to have both of you on here. Tim, let me go to you first. The Conservatives voted against the Emergencies Act in the House of Commons last night. Tell me, give me your take on this act and why you oppose it. I think this is really uh, a matter of absentee of, of any type of leadership. I mean, the Prime Minister for weeks has been dividing Canadians, stigmatizing them, wedging them against each other. And then just to throw fuel on the fire, put, brings in the Emergencies Act. These are unprecedented powers with, that really account to uh, government overreach of these powers and being able to freeze accounts of, of people who took part in the protest. And we don't even know if that means if they physically took part, if they liked something on Facebook, if to how much they donated. We don't know if that's a $50 donation or a $10,000 donation. So there's so many unanswered questions, and yet they brought this forward and are now even saying that they want to extend it, and that's why we voted against it. Hey, Randeep Sarai, your thoughts? Look, this is a, a protest that came in on January 26th, 27th, saying they're coming in for 72 hours. The city took a trust in them, allowed them to park their trucks and barricade the whole city for what was supposed to be three days. Uh, it took another two weeks, and then the city declared a state of emergency that after they harassed all the uh, uh, retail workers, store shop workers, bankers, anybody worked in that city by uh, harassing them with their war face masks, yelled absurdities to them, honked horns from five in the morning. And I've li- I stayed there. I witnessed it all five in the morning till two in the morning at night, not letting anybody work or sleep. And then the, after the city invoked the state of emergency, the province invoked the state of emergency on February 11th. After four days of the province not being able to handle it, 
after letters from Jason Kenney, after letters from the Manitoba Premier, after letters from the Premier of uh, Ontario, a state of a federal state of emergency was done. Only at that time was the federal government able to deputize and bring um, uh, police officers from across the country and out of state uh, in order right. to handle it. And right, they but, did it's, it. but it's all over now, Randeep. The trucks are gone. The honking has stopped. The borders are open. Why do you still well, need this emergency? Zone? It's not over yet, Mike. There's hundreds of trucks just within 70 and 40 kilometers staged at two farms. Uh, the intelligence that the I believe the uh, the police is stating that it's not over. They have a lot of grave concerns. They've denied bail to one of the activists on it, uh, uh, Miss Leach, right there this morning, I believe, yeah. because yeah. they're still inciting. It is not the same atmosphere as we think. When it's calm, it'll be over. It's only a, it's a maximum emergency stay of 30 days. If it needs to be extended, it'll have to be extended okay. with the consent of Parliament. Okay, Tim Upple. I mean, and the fact of the matter is that even when they were announcing these emergency powers, uh, the, the streets were starting to be cleared. The police have already have powers to make that to do that happen. Unfortunately, it didn't happen earlier. But now you look there, the streets are cleared. The trucks are gone. The protesters are, are gone. And now, you know, liberal ministers are talking about extending these powers. That is very, very concerning. And there's so many unanswered questions about these unprecedented powers, about well, how much power do they actually have under this? And if they're saying that it could go beyond 30 days, I think that's something that is, is, is something that, you know, Canadians would not trust Justin Trudeau with this. He had the opportunity to calm things down. I mean, yes, we got to this point three weeks into this protest, but well before that, he had an opportunity to support our motion. He didn't have to support our motion, but what we had said is that bring forward a plan to end the mandates. We're going to end those yeah. mandates anyways, right? I mean, there's major uh, uh, companies like Air Canada and others saying that we need to start changing things. Dr. Tam is also saying that we need to start looking at um, uh, some of these mandates. And yet, yeah. and so all we said is bring forward a plan. That hey, would Tim. have helped. Hey, Tim, let me, let me ask you this. I'm speaking to Tim Upple, conservative MP, liberal MP, Randeep Sarai is also here. Tim, you mentioned that, you know, you're worried that if someone likes a Facebook page that supports the, the truckers convoy, that maybe they could have their bank accounts frozen. But your colleague, conservative MP Mark Strahl, who is from British Columbia here, tweeted on the weekend that he was aware of a, a local constituent in his riding that he identified only as Brianne and said that she was a single mom who had her bank account frozen after donating fifty dollars to the freedom to the freedom convoy. How do we how do we know this stuff is happening? Like is that stuff actually happening or is this just a fantasy? Your thoughts? I think the bigger concern first of all, we're we're all hearing about concerns that that Canadians have, right? That they may have donated, especially before this turned into you know, where the truckers stayed, clearly overstayed their welcome. But well before that, Canadians are donating to this or, or supporting it in one way or another, showing up in their own cities um, of supporting this convoy. So they don't know if how will they be targeted or designated as, you know, uh, supporting... Yeah, but your, col- your colleague is saying that actually happened. He's, your colleague is saying that this actually happened He's to his constituent. He's a concern from a constituent. Yeah. I think the biggest concern, bigger concern is that the government is not able to answer us right now of what are the parameters is it a $50 donation? If they're saying that, no, that cannot happen, then there's something that needs to be done on, on the side of, of, of the bank. But is it a $50? Is it you know, a $5,000 donation? At what point are yeah. you considered a designated person? Okay. Th- th- that's where really the concern is, and that's why there's this shadow over Canadians not knowing exactly what these powers mean. So they've given Justin Trudeau and the Liberals and the NDP have teamed up to give Justin Trudeau all of these powers, 
and, and the trust just isn't there. Okay, Randeep Sarai, your thoughts? So, first of all, it's anybody who gives money after the Emergency Act has been invoked, which is after February 15. If you contribute to a, uh, this act to cause disobedience against uh, what has been ordered not to happen in the in the capital region of Ottawa and at the borders, if you can, if you can. Continuing to donate after that, then your accounts are subject to being frozen. They're not taken away. They freeze those assets so that you're not able to contribute to them. So let's make that clear. Anybody who gave $10, $50 prior to this uh, are not subject to this. Anyone who continued or to give money after the emergency act that was invoked is the one that has so even, even if you only gave like 50, 10 bucks or 50 bucks, you could have your account uh-huh. frozen? I think the emergency act gives gives the power to do that. Whether or not they're yeah. doing that to that effect is is something I don't know. I think that's police authorities and 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 the justice minister who has uh, uh, department officials who look at that. But it's it's only those that do that afterwards. And if there's an issue, they're able to make an application saying hey, it's an automatic. Uh, withdrawal that came out or I didn't mean to, I didn't understand that, and I'm sure it would be remedied. That's not the intent of the law. Its intent is so we don't get foreign interference, we don't get people fueling this thing. Okay. Remember, these guys came in with the first manifesto and the memorandum was to overthrow the government. This is not about uh, mandates. Okay, Originally, Tim. it was about that, and then they changed it when they thought people don't like that ma- manifesto or, or it was scary and they might be uh, persecuted for that. So you cannot have a government negotiate with a group that's first mandate and memorandum is to overthrow the government. Tim Apple. Sec- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead you know Just, I, th- yeah. I think the bigger concern here is that the vote was barely over yesterday where the, the Liberals and the NDP uh, teamed up to vote this through, and then already ministers are talking about extending these powers beyond the 30 days. Uh, we've got two cabinet ministers that have already done that, talking about how they can extend it. The finance minister, Christian Freeland, has already talked about making some of these financial measures permanent. And so, again, we come back to this idea that now that they've brought this forward, some of this stuff is going to be permanent, it's going to be extended. Canadians just don't trust Justin Trudeau and the Liberals to, to handle, handle this. I mean, they're saying about what is the recourse? They've given the banks the power to already freeze these accounts. And so you have Canadians yeah. that ha- might have their uh, bank accounts frozen, not being able to make mortgage payments. Well, how does this affect their credit? There's so many un- unanswered questions okay, here. Okay, Ran- Randy, br- brief reply to you, Randeep. Sure, look, so some of the, the measures that are going to have to be revised are particularly when it comes to foreign money coming in. We cannot have Trumponians from the U.S. Um, uh, funding Canadian protests out here. I think it's a very dangerous. We saw 56% of the funds that came in over the half of over $5 million of the $10 million are coming in from the U.S., from far-right groups, from extremist groups, the same people who had the same email accounts that funded the Capitol Hill attack. So, of course, we're expected to make measures that we don't have funds coming in from okay. the U.S. We don't have far-right groups funding protests or overthrow the government. Okay. So these are different and malicious acts. All right, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for a good discussion and your time today. My guests there were Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP, Surrey Centre, Tim Uppel, Conservative MP. All right, welcome back to the show. I had a ton of calls there in that last segment. If you did not get through, you want to have your say on the Emergencies Act today, make sure you phone me on the buzz line today, okay? Leave me a voicemail. We may play it later. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. 604-331-2899. Let's talk about the BC budget, which is being unveiled 
this afternoon. It is Budget Day in British Columbia. Finance Minister Selena Robinson set the table that budget this afternoon. I've got a preview for you right now. I got an awesome panel standing by. First, have a listen to Premier John Horgan here last week at his BC economic plan that he laid out. A few hints about the direction of this budget last week. Have a listen to what Horgan had to say. Despite all that we've been through, the economic recovery in British Columbia is leading the country with the lowest unemployment rate and the highest job recovery rate. More people are working today than were when the pandemic began. And our economic vision has always been to put people right at the center of everything that we do. We cannot have economic growth that leaves people behind. Okay, you heard Horgan there bragging about the B.C. economy right now. The budget coming down this afternoon. What are the government's priorities here? Could there be tax hikes in this budget? We're always looking closely at that. All right, let's discuss now with our panel. Alex Hemingway is an economist and a public finance policy analyst, B.C. Centre for Policy Alternatives. Alex, thanks for coming back on. Uh, Good morning, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line, Ken Peacock. Ken is the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Hi, Ken. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Good to be with you, Mike. Okay, Ken, what are you looking for in this budget today? Like, what is business hoping for this afternoon? Well, um, it's a good question, Mike. The the circumstances and times are unique. Uh, We fully expect there will be more attention to battling this pandemic, uh, supports for, for businesses, supports for households, individuals, uh, clearly housing, uh, clearly climate is going to be uh, top of the agenda and reconciliation. But but we are definitely looking now for some sort of signals and even measures or steps that, that looking more to the medium term, Mike, uh, you know, where, where what we're going to do to support growth, attract investment, and really kind of focus on, on growing productivity over the, the medium term. We fully expect lots of measures for, for the near term, but we think it's time to turn our attention to uh, how we're going to grow and prosper in, in the coming decade. Well, you, you heard in that clip we played from Premier John Horgan, it sounds like things are doing wonderful in British Columbia with the picture that he was painting here, that the economy seems quite robust in British Columbia, according to the Premier. Do you agree with him there, Ken? Well, yeah, sure. I, I mean, it, it is if you take a snapshot now. Uh, but this is this is a rebound from the economy economy being fully shut down, international travel. We all know the story. Um, so the the, the kind of four percent growth number that we're looking at or expecting this year, uh, next year we, that's going to fade, and we're gonna we're gonna slow and revert to kind of long term traditional a normal growth rate of around two and a half percent. And when we look at per capita growth and some other metrics of prosperity, Mike, we see many reasons to be concerned. We can get into that in a minute, but I don't want to take up too much time up front. Okay, let me go to Alex Hemingway. Alex, what are you looking for in this budget? Well, you know, it's an interesting moment we're in here. On the one hand, uh, you know, this is an early to mid-term of a majority government, and that's typically a time when you see a, a, a fairly quiet steady-as-she-goes type of budget. On the other hand, obviously, we're, we're facing some very big challenges uh, and crises here in B.C., uh, and, you know, the, the, the pandemic being just one of them. One thing I do expect to see and I think could be a bright spot in the budget is a significant boost in funding for that uh, $10 a day child care program that's started to roll out over the past few years. And we know, particularly because federal dollars are starting to roll in in a big way, you know, those are going to have to be uh, invested. And that's, 
going to the, the issue of medium and long-term economic growth, this is an important one, and governments have started to recognize this in recent years, that, you know, investing in affordable public child care is a way to allow uh, higher labor force participation, get folks back in the workforce, parents, in particular women. Uh, and uh, so that actually leads to uh, higher, longer-term economic growth. And we saw this actually on the introduction of a similar program in Quebec back in the 90s. So the evidence on that is quite clear. In other areas, I'm a little bit concerned that we're going to be uh, overly constraining public spending. We do have to get this housing crisis under control. Uh, there are many facets to that, but one element that's needed is public investment on a scale beyond uh, what we've seen over the past few years. Uh, we have other uh, issues on our hands, toxic drugs, and of course the climate crisis uh, as well is another one of those where upfront investment now is going to uh, uh, cost us less than delaying action on climate change, and it's going to set up our economy for the medium and long term as well. Okay, let me go back to Ken Peacock from the Business Council. Ken, you just heard Alex make the case there for more spending. I mean, I I don't remember a a period in our history recently when there's been more spending than what we've seen in the last couple of years during this pandemic. The budget right now has a $1.7 billion deficit. What do you think of the plan to keep on spending money well the the, the plan to spend additional more money it, it's actually not sustainable mike you're, you're absolutely right uh, governments federal and provincial have uh, put forth extraordinary amounts of stimulus to prop up the economy uh, it was appropriate uh, at the time but uh, no we, we we are in no position to be able to expand expand spending and on, on top of that depending on what the spending is and, and where it goes, if we're talking capital projects and large and construction uh, investments, the, the question of labor supply and capacity uh, is, is something that we, we need to consider. And, and, and just to circle back, uh, Mike, just because you were asking sort of what, what we were looking for in the, in the budget, and, and Alex mentioned climate change. Yeah. Uh, one thing that we are really looking for, uh, and it is very, very important at this point, is some some indication, some measure, or even a very clear signal that the government is prepared to do something to um, provide some relief to our energy-intensive exporters. Um, the carbon tax here in BC, we find ourselves in a unique circumstance where we're pay- uh, companies that are exporting are paying millions of dollars in carbon tax, and BC is the only jurisdiction in North America that has a, sort of a, a fairly significant price on carbon, while at the same time provides no protection for their exporters. And, and this is really becoming a problem in terms of the competitive position of BC's exporters, Mike. So, so we what, really, what really would you? Are looking. What would you like to see there? So, you're, are you calling for reducing the carbon tax or freezing it in, for some sectors, or what? Uh, it, it, no, no, not reducing it. We, we support the carbon tax, Mike, but. But if you look to other jurisdictions that do have carbon pricing and carbon taxes in place, they have mechanisms to provide some offsets for their exporters. And, and that's simply because if you think about a, a forest products company selling into the North American marketplace in, in BC, that company would pay you know, perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars in carbon tax, whereas competitors in other jurisdictions do not face that cost. So there are mechanisms to provide some relief, uh, cap-and-trade systems and whatnot. But it really is those exporters who, who face that burden that, that other companies in, in competing jurisdictions don't face. That's really the challenge. Yeah. It's not rolling back the carbon tax we're talking, Mike. No, not Okay. 
Okay, we're talking about the BC budget coming down this afternoon. My guests are Alex Hemingway from the BC Center for Policy Alternatives, Ken Peacock, Business Council of BC. Uh, Alex, you heard Ken th- say that the p- rate of spending that we've seen in the province and the country is unsustainable. You disagree? Yeah, well, I think we have to get some perspective on this. This is actually really an important issue. Uh, so when you look at the long-term spending trajectory in, in British Columbia, provincial public spending, look at it as a share of our total economic pie, as a share of GDP each year. We've actually seen a quite significant decline in provincial public spending as a share of GDP uh, over the past couple of decades. So if we were uh, spending uh, the same share of our economic output today on shared public investments, and we know you know, those investments are needed for social and environmental reasons, but also to strengthen our economy. If we were spending at that same rate today, we'd be having an extra $5 billion uh, on the table for those types of uh, investments. So, yes, we did have, you know, a, a significant uh, uh, deficit over the past couple of years, of course. And, and I think Ken and I are in agreement, and, and most folks are, that that made sense at the time of uh, the pandemic. But looking ahead, you know, that spending is coming down very quickly, and those deficits actually came in much lower than planned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is important what you spend it on. Uh, and what we're talking about here, uh, child care spending, housing spending, uh, climate change uh, spending, these are investments that have a payoff in the medium uh, okay. and long term. All right, welcome back. We're getting you set for the BC budget coming down this afternoon. My guests are Alex Hemingway, BC Center for Policy Alternatives, Ken Peacock, Business Council of British Columbia. Lots of phone calls. James in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. My my definition of NDP is no definable plan, and I don't see that changing for this budget. When when you you talk about affordability and taxes, of course we're overtaxed. We're the highest tax province in the entire like North America when it comes to gasoline, and all that revolves down into inflation for the trucking for products and stuff like that. There, there's no give on that. The stuff that they should be looking at, they're not looking at. The money that they're giving away, they're giving away to people that don't really need it, and the money that they should be clawing back from corporations for all the funding that they got through COVID, they're not even looking at. So, like, any any economic diversity that they say that they have, I don't believe in, okay. in, in the slightest bit. Okay, thank you for the call. Alex, what do you think of that take? He's, uh, the caller complains about too much taxes, too much spending. Your thoughts? Well, look, I, you, you don't have to take it from me either. Uh, BC is a low-tax jurisdiction compared to other provinces. Uh, you know, uh, the credit rating agencies like Moody's will point this out. This, this is quite clear. Now, of course, you know, we have been pushing along with the rest of the country on the carbon tax, and that's one important component of addressing an issue like climate change. You know, having said that, you know, there's a lot to unpack here, but there's no question affordability is an issue for people all over the province. And some of the biggest cost drivers there are uh, for families with young children, it's childcare, uh, it's housing all over the province. And these are areas that are not going to resolve themselves. We need public policy changes and uh, in- increased public investment is actually an important component okay. of that to bring those costs under control for households. And actually, that's important for businesses as well. You know, uh, businesses have difficulty recruiting workers when uh, uh, at, at decent wages when uh, housing costs are as high as they are. Oh, so okay. there's a lot we need to do there. Okay, Ken, do you think BC is a low-tax jurisdiction? Thank you for asking, Mike. I was going to have to jump in there. Um, so, first of all, let's just take a couple of high-level numbers. I mean, the personal income tax rate, the top marginal personal income tax rate in BC right now is 53.5%. 
So that's one right at the top across the provinces, and it's very, very uh, on the high side, very much on the high side in the North American context. In addition to that, that top marginal tax rate kicks in at a low rate, $220,000, I believe it is. Other jurisdictions, uh, it's much higher. And in Washington State, they don't even have personal income tax at the state level. So just at the personal front, we're not competitive. And to my mind, if we want to attract the best and the brightest, we want to be on the lower end of the scale, not the higher end. Um, corporate income tax, relatively high in, in BC. It's gone up recently. Um, this is not unique to BC, but employment insurance, CPP premiums are going up, and the carbon tax, Mike. So no, no, we definitely have competitiveness challenges, and to characterize us as a low-tax jurisdiction, I think, is a little... Um, so a little concerning and, and, and not really recognizing where we sit uh, these okay. other jurisdictions. Okay, let's squeeze another call in here. John on the North Shore. Hi, John, go ahead. Hey, how are you? Um, I, I finally heard it said that I believe that the biggest crisis in this province, this country, and North America is the lack of employ- employable people. Um, yeah. Every business, I'm in businesses all day long, every business I go into what would normally be a staff of 30 people are running on like six, seven, eight people. And yeah. if we don't fix this, it's, it's already broken. So it's kind of, I don't know how you do it. I, I know housing has to come down. I know there's all kinds of things we have to do, but if we don't fix this, who's going to serve you when you go in to get anything? And even, okay. you know, dentists, the dentists don't have anybody at the front desk. The doctors don't have any assistance. Like it's a, a systemic issue that we need to address you know, uh, John, ago, okay, John, ago. John, thank you for a really good call, and I think you put your point on a really important uh, point. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I mean, we've touched on this a, a little bit, and it's some of these uh, social, what we typically think of as social investments, are also labor force investments. So investing in childcare, uh, affordable childcare, allows uh, more folks to enter the labor force. Uh, the evidence on this is very clear. Everyone agrees, and that's why there's uh, such widespread support for uh, investing in public child care. Uh, housing, we were just talking about as well. You know, housing is a labor force policy. When people uh, can't have an affordable place to live uh, near where their work is, that's a huge uh, pressure on businesses and, of course, on those folks as households as well. Okay. So that's absolutely critical. Okay, Ken, your thoughts on that labor crunch right now? We just got a minute left here. Go ahead. Yeah, the the labor crunch is is very real, Mike. The um, I was just looking at some data for for late last year. The number of unemployed people in, in BC is around one hundred and fifty thousand right now. Those are people looking to work, and the number of job vacancies is around one hundred and fifty thousand as well. So this one unemployed person for every job vacancy uh, ratio is, is unique. It's used usually two to one, one and a half to one. Uh, very tight labor market conditions. That's not going to change. And I do. I just got to say, we got to push uh, push back a little bit on the childcare thing. I, 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 we support childcare, and childcare should come in, but it's more to support uh, households and low income households uh, with children okay. rather than a big boost in the labor market. Mike, female okay. participation rates are up high, so uh, that is not a solution for labor market participation okay. numbers. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about housing affordability and the crisis there now. Everyone knows housing costs have rocketed through the roof throughout the entire region. Prices continue to soar to record high levels, putting the dream of home ownership out of the reach of many people, even in areas once considered quote-unquote affordable, like the Fraser Valley. Prices seem to be out of control. What is the answer to this? How can we make home ownership affordable and realistic for non-millionaires? Well, 
the government has tried to cool off an overheated market with things like a vacant homes tax or a foreign buyers tax. How about the other side of that supply and demand equation? How about increasing the supply of homes, get more homes built that people can actually afford to buy? Now, check this out. Housing Minister David Eby, he says the government is now considering taking away some of the permitting powers currently held by municipal governments to approve housing construction to get more homes built in the province. Got a couple of great guests coming up on this. Now, first, have a listen to this. Now, this is David Eby, the housing minister, in conversation with Simi Sarah about not enough housing is available. Have a listen. We're talking about 25,000 new residents in a three-month period in our province, and that is only going to continue. And at the same time, there were just over 6,000 active listings in December in the, uh, in the NLS listing service. So things are only going to get worse unless we start building the housing. Okay, build more housing. That is what EB says he wants to see happen. How do you do that? Well, he says municipalities are not approving enough new housing, enough new building to match population growth. The province indicating they could step in here, take over some of those municipal permitting powers. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Craig Hodge from the Union of BC Municipalities, a city councillor in Coquitlam. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Craig, thank you for coming on today. Uh, Good morning, Mike. Okay, Craig, let's talk first of all, just in general, about the situation we face right now with this unaffordable housing market. Do Do you agree we need to build more stuff, right? Like we need to build more housing, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think local government recognizes that. Uh, certainly the, the whole the housing situation is, is a complex problem. It's, uh, it's supply, it's demand, um, it's speculation, it's investment that's taking place, and it's, it's also a problem about the capacity to build more houses. Okay, what do you think of this idea now being broached by David Eby, the provincial housing minister, uh, watch out, here comes the provincial government, maybe take away some of this permitting power from local governments in order to speed this up. Are you worried about that? Yeah, I think that we need to respect local government autonomy and the, and the rights of local citizens to have a say in how their community develops. And uh, I think uh, one, of the, one of the challenges that we have is how do we create more housing? We in the past, the Union of BC Municipalities and local governments, have, uh, have worked with uh, the provincial government. Uh, it's only recently that the provincial government is starting to point the finger and say, well, you're, you're not doing enough at the local level to, uh, to approve the housing. And yet we're still seeing record numbers of housing uh, being, uh, being created each year. Each year in the past 10 years, other than the first year of the pandemic, which is 2020, each year has seen an increase in housing over the previous year in, in the province. Okay, so what is your message to David Eby then? Stay out of it? Stay out of municipal jurisdiction? I think that we have to continue to find ways to work together. And I think that there are ways that we can work together. But I think that the one thing that concerns me is that there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. What works in Vancouver isn't going to work in Vanderhoof. 
This is a province-wide problem. We have housing shortages in just about every region of the province, and that's being driven by a demand for housing. We have more people moving into the province, and we have to find a way to house them. And and we need people moving into the province. So the provincial or the federal government is increasing immigration uh, because there's a shortage of jobs. Uh, You know, there are a shortage of people to fill the jobs that we have. Right. You know, we need more healthcare workers, teachers, first responders, service workers, and we need them in our communities. And the only way we're going to get them in our communities is to provide housing for them. Right. And when I speak to people who in the building trades, they often tell me nightmarish horror stories about how difficult it is to work with some local governments that it's a maze of regulatory red tape. It's expensive. There are long and costly delays to get housing built and get it approved and permitted in these in these municipalities that there are fights over building heights and parking and and the character of neighborhoods and it goes on and on backlash you know the nimby factor of people in neighborhoods pushing back and local politicians kind of caving into local pressure are are you saying that's not are you saying that's not going on because it it clearly seems that that's where the, the province is saying that that's happening and that's why they're threatening to step in so there, you've raised a couple of points there. Um, yeah. First is that each permit is going to be different and the development is going to be different. In my own city of Coquitlam, we had a, we had a, um, a high-rise project go from uh, pre-application through the public hearing process, through the development process, and they picked up a building permit in one year. Uh, then we have another project that's been two or three years because of design flaws and, and problems in the design and, and a lot of technical stuff. And so those are, those are creating uh, issues. There's also a shortage of staff. Uh, we do not have enough planners in the industry. And the solution to hiring more planners is not to steal them away from the neighboring community. So we need more planners at, at City Hall. Um, and in the, in the uh, development industry, they need more capacity as well. There's a shortage of architects and, uh, and engineers. So it's, it's not just a, a point the finger at, at one side. On, on the point of nimbyism, I think yeah. that, you know, purchasing a home in a sing- is the single biggest investment that a person makes. So, it, you know, it's only natural that people want to protect both their investment and their lifestyle that they've become accustomed to. But as a city councillor, I often tell people the toughest part of my job is making decisions for the future and for those residents who don't live here yet and they don't have a voice. So, you know, it's a balancing act between planning for the future, but also respecting the wishes of those people who live here today. And that is that is tough. Okay, I'm speaking to Craig Hodge, Coquitlam City Councilor, and he's also with the Union of BC Municipalities. The BC government here now threatening to step in and, and take away some of these permitting powers from municipalities in order to get more housing built. Uh, Craig, can the government legally do that? Like, do they have to change the law in order to take away the jurisdiction that it, right now is the, is the turf of local government? Right. We uh, local governments uh, operate under the Local Government Act, uh, yeah. form of the Municipal Act, and so yeah, we we are a creature of the provincial government. So they set the rules under which we operate. Uh, Vancouver operates under a different charter from the rest of us. But yes, they, they can change the rules and uh, change things on the fly. And that's one of the things that concerns us is we think that we need to find ways to work together. Um, certainly, there are some municipalities that are doing a better job than, than others. 
And, and I think that what we have to do is find ways that we can support those municipalities and show them how, how things can be done. I'll, I'll just sort of go to my own municipality, if I may, and say that, you know, last year we had 3,800 units under construction. 4,100 units had gone through the public hearing process. Uh, we had 4,500 building permits issued. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that we have a lot of building permits sitting at our counter that haven't been picked up yet. And I think mm. that mm. speaks to several problems on the industry side. One is the capacity to build everything that's being approved. There's just not enough construction workers to build everything. Yeah, yeah, okay, good point. Craig, thank you for coming on to talk about this today. Okay, great, thank you, Craig. All right, I think this is a really interesting situation here with the B.C. government threatening to step in here, take away some of these municipal powers, permitting powers, to get more housing built. I wonder if they'll actually follow through on that. We've seen earlier earlier governments threaten to do this and never follow through on it. Lots of calls on it. Let me check in quickly with Paul Sullivan, spokesperson for the Business Tax Alliance. Hey, Paul. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Do you think the government should do this? The B.C. government should step in here and take over some of this permitting power from uh, municipalities? Well, yeah, I think there's a role for everybody in this conversation. You know, federal government, provincial government, straight down to municipalities. We can't have government investing in communities and in infrastructure and transportation and those communities not delivering on housing. I mean, we could take Port yeah. Moody, for example. We bored a hole through Burnaby Mountain to get them a rapid sky train. And uh, based on the latest statistics, their, their population has gone down. So oh. that's not okay. And yeah. if we're going to invest in communities, they need to build homes. And is it is it a, a backlog in the municipal permitting process? Like, how long does it take to get these these homes approved? Well, I mean, Mike, this is a really complicated problem, and I, I actually spent this morning talking to some architects and some builders. And it, it's not fair to necessarily blame staff, but everybody collectively is to blame. We have created the most complex built form, you know, it starts with a policy. We want to have the greenest city in the world. And then we hire the engineers to figure out how to build buildings and like that. And then we impose policies on the construction of these buildings. And then we ask the staff to monitor and implement them. And then we try to get the builders to build them. So yeah. we have created such complex development to meet this sort of political agenda um, that we no longer can get things built quickly. We can't get them approved. There's duplication of process between engineering uh, privately versus the municipalities. You know, we have to come up with some streamlined approaches for delivering housing. We need prescriptive timelines for certain types of developments to occur. Okay, Paul, let's take a few phone calls here. We've got lots of them, see what people think. Sandra on the line in North Vancouver. Hi, Sandra, go ahead. Hi, I really hope that the provincial government gets involved. I live in the district of North Vancouver, and we need to have the zoning changed. There are a significant amount of um, baby boomers in their 60s and late 60s that have homes that are between three and 4,000 square feet that want to have a second suite, not just one, but a second. You can put two suites in a basement that's 2,000 square feet and rent or sell one or two suites. And this government, or sorry, this municipal government here in the district, they won't even let lots that are over 13,000 square feet be subdivided for homes. It's ridiculous. Okay, and Paul, these are big okay, lots. Thank you for that call. Paul, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I, kind of, what rings the bell for me is, you know, think back to the 60s and the 70s. We, we had the Vancouver special, you know, yeah. love it or hate it. But guess what? You have a pre-approved design 
concept that fits a zoning. You get a rubber stamp in six weeks, you build homes. So we've got to get a little bit out of the box here and, and come up with ideas on pre-approved zonings, pre-approved building plans. Let's create critical mass rapidly right. and, and, and prescribe deadlines. There can be carrots and sticks from either the provincial or federal government with regard to financing, infrastructure, et cetera. Yeah. But there's room for everybody to be part of this equation. Okay, Steve and Victoria on the phone line. Go ahead, Steve. Hey, fellas. Uh, yeah, let's just open it up. Let's build everywhere. Let's upzone everything. Let's keep on not talking about the demand issues. Let's sell overseas. Who cares buying all this property? I mean, this is ridiculous. As long as we have supply, endless supply demands, and we have no demand constraints, where does it end? Where does it so, end? So you think, like, what, there should be a foreign buyer's ban? Oh, I think we need to look at what Singapore is doing. I mean, come on. We're supposed to be a leading, a world-class country. We can't even protect our citizens. I mean, okay. heaven forbid we do something for our citizens. Okay, Paul, what do you think of that? I mean, they've already brought in a foreign buyer's tax, right? Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I mean, the government, the B.C. government particularly, has tried everything under the sun with, with taxation and banning buyers, other than outright banning them. And I, I don't think that's a Canadian way, personally. Um I Why not? What's wrong? What's wrong with a with a foreign buyer's ban? I mean, other jurisdictions have done it, right? We just got a minute left here. Well, not many, not many around the world, but but uh, it's, it's a little hard to make those statements when you got the federal government asking four hundred thousand new immigrants to come into the country this year, on top of all of the pent up demand for people coming to to British Columbia. So, it, I just don't really think it's reality, or, or certainly not in alignment with the federal policies. Okay, squeeze in one more call. Peter in North Van. Peter, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a guy who attends all the district council meetings here in the district of North Vancouver. And, yeah, I agree with Mr. Sullivan that the process to get something to even come before council has a lot of dynamics. Step code, uh, you know, GHG emission, uh, you know, all, all those kind of things. They all slow things down. They all make them more expensive. But even if you had free land, with the cost of construction these days, new builds are still not affordable. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and the census showed 1,500 empty units in District North Vancouver. So okay. that's not our problem. Thank you for that call, Paul. I know we, we could keep talking about this for the whole show. We'll just have to have you back on because we've got more to talk about and we've got more calls. So let's do it again. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
All right, welcome back to the show. We're keeping a close eye on events with Russia and Ukraine. And here is what is happening right now at this hour. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered Russian troops into parts of eastern Ukraine in what the Kremlin is calling a peacekeeping mission. This came shortly after Putin signed decrees recognizing the independence of some of these regions in eastern Ukraine. The United States reacting. U.S. President Joe Biden set to speak about this. He's running late. His uh, remarks were supposed to start about half an hour ago, and we're still watching closely to see when Biden will remark. Well, we expect the United States to announce sanctions on Russia. The White House today is saying that this is the beginning of the latest Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the White House calling Russians' aggression here utterly unprovoked and unjustified. We expect uh, U.S. sanctions to be announced here by the president here shortly. Earlier, U.K. President Boris Johnson also announcing sanctions against Russia. Here is Johnson speaking in the British House of Commons. Have a listen. Last night, President Putin flagrantly violated the Minsk peace agreements by recognizing the supposed independence of the so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. In a single inflammatory speech, he denied that Ukraine had any tradition of genuine statehood, claimed that it posed a direct threat to the security of Russia, and hurled numerous other false accusations and aspersions. Soon afterwards, the Kremlin announced that Russian troops would enter the breakaway regions under the guise of peacekeepers and Russian tanks and armoured personnel carriers have since been spotted. The House should be in no doubt that the deployment of these forces in sovereign Ukrainian territory amounts to a renewed invasion of that country. Okay, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking earlier today. All right, let's discuss now with my guest Yaroslav Baran, past president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Yaroslav, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for doing it. Yaroslav, how are Ukrainian people feeling today about the situation, would you say? Well, obviously, uh, people are very anxious about these recent developments. I mean, a lot of members of our community have uh, still have family in Ukraine. Uh, I've, I've spoken with a colleague, one of my business partners, who's, who has parents living in, in the capital, in cave, and he's checking in with them. Are you okay? What's going on? What are people saying? What are people fearing? So there's a lot of anxiety, needless to say. But more importantly, people are waiting to see exactly what the West's response is going to be. This, is, this has been a very slow-mo kind of thing. We've been watching this develop for several months. Now it has started. So people, not just members of the Ukrainian-Canadian community, but Canadians at large, are waiting to see, do we actually have the resolve to push back the way we ought to push back against this kind of international aggression? Yeah, this was really an amazing speech by Putin we saw this week on Ukraine. And I wonder, Yaroslav, what goes through your mind when you hear Putin say that he questions the right of Ukraine to actually be called an independent state, basically calling modern Ukraine some sort of like an artificial construct of the Soviet Union. Russians and Ukrainians are effectively one people. Like when you hear that, what goes through your mind? 
Yeah, it was, it was really surreal, but I've, I've heard these tropes before. He gave a very similar speech at a, an annual think tank conference that he runs, uh, you know, last year. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is historians will tell you that, that, that Ukraine, Ukrainian statehood goes back to the 700s AD before Russia was even a twinkle in anybody's eye. It has a very long tradition, very long, uh, long rooted, uh, heritage as being a, a quintessential Eastern European country and in, in several times in history was the largest country in Europe. Um, so, I mean, it, it was clearly, that speech was clearly for a domestic audience. It was clearly a pretext for invasion, and it's perpetuating a disinformation myth that he's been pushing for a good decade now. Yeah, what about these these two regions in eastern Ukraine that, that where he's ordered troops into, and he the Russian president has now recognized the independence yeah. of of these two regions? Can you describe like? what these sure. regions are like like are is 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 putin popular there i mean what is the situation there yeah i mean like like it, i'll acknowledge it's a, it's a complex issue kind of like language is in ireland where you know there are many people who don't even speak gaelic right and after 300 years of intense intense russification um by russia in ukraine you know banning schools burning burning ukrainian schools burning ukrainian textbooks literally for 300 years needless to say understandably uh there are regions in in ukraine where russian is spoken more uh more readily than ukrainian is right, certainly not right. everywhere it's certainly it's a minority thing but in that part of ukraine russian is the it tends to be the mother tongue over Ukrainian, although virtually everybody is is bilingual there. Uh, kind of like, um, you know, kind of like at best in Ireland, you'll have people speaking both Gaelic and English, but you know, English will be the the mother tongue. That's the situation in that part of Ukraine. So, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. but he set up these proxy states. He seven years ago, eight years ago, he set up these uh, through through protests and sending in the army. He set up these quote-unquote breakaway republics uh, as proxy states, just like he did in Crimea, and they've been kind of frozen conflict zones. And that's what he's recognized now, and it was was an excuse to send it explicitly send in troops. He's had troops on the ground in Donetsk and Luhansk until now, but they haven't been wearing Russian army insignia. They've been like quote-unquote volunteers and stuff like that, but now they are brazenly, openly, consciously, explicitly wearing Russian insignia uh, on the ground in Ukraine. Do you think that Putin is afraid of Ukraine possibly joining NATO and that that is a threat to Russia and his his own rule in Russia? He's, he's very, what he's most afraid of is the successful democratic Ukraine because his, his regime is, okay, for, first of all, it's, it is, uh, it's a quintessentially fascist state. If we if we look at you know sort of what defines that term, state control, autocratic, no freedom of the press, no freedom of, in parliament, no free elections, no you know no freedom of journalism, etc. Um, if he sees additional Eastern European countries thriving in a democratic you know according to democratic norms with pluralistic political environments and freedom of the press, etc. That then sends a signal to the dissidents in his own country that they can do better than what they've got right now. That's what actually what he what he fears the most. 
He hates seeing it in Poland. He hates seeing a successful Poland, a successful Czech Republic, a successful Latvia, Estonia, etc. But look, Ukraine is a country the size of France. If he sees that happening in Ukraine, uh, which is on his doorstep and one of the largest countries in Europe, then he really he recognizes the threat that that would represent in emboldening his critics whom he's been trying to silence or kill. Speaking to Yaroslav Baran, past president, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and we're watching closely the activities here on the Russia-Ukraine border. Uh, let me play a clip, another clip here for you from Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Yaroslav, to get your thoughts. So here is the British Prime Minister announcing sanctions on Russia. Have a listen. Today, the UK is sanctioning the following five Russian banks. Rossiya, IS Bank, Gen- General Bank, Promziaz Bank, and the Black Sea Bank. And we are sanctioning three very high net worth individuals, Gennady Timchenko, Boris Rottenberg, and Igor Rottenberg. Any assets they hold in the UK will be frozen. The individuals concerned will be banned from traveling here. And we will prohibit all UK individuals and entities from having any dealings with them. This is the first tranche the first barrage of what we are prepared to do. And we hold further sanctions at readiness to be deployed alongside the United States and the European Union if the situation escalates still further. Okay, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking in the British House of Commons. Yaroslav Baran, what do you think of what he had to say there? Well, you know, good for Boris Johnson. One of the, when, when these kinds of situations happen, there are three things that matter. Unity resolve and credibility because don't forget vladimir putin is a former kgb chief he used to run the kgb he's also a black belt in judo through both of those traditions he has a lifelong training to sit quietly wait 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 observe assess and then when he finds that moment of weakness and vulnerability throw all your force right at that spot right at that time that's how he operates that's how he's always operated so the one thing that will deter him not is not is not you know diplomatic conventions and let's you know have another summit and another gab fest. The one thing he responds to is 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 serious pushback, and that's what I've seen from the UK. They've actually outperformed Germany. They've outperformed uh, the United States today. Boris Johnson has essentially taken over the mantle of uh, leader of the free world from from Angela Merkel based on what I've seen today. Good for him. And what we need to see is a unified NATO and a unified West and a unified European Union in following suit and saying, okay, dude, you did this seven years ago, eight years ago when you took over Crimea and when you first established your foothold in the East. We are not going to tolerate this anymore. This is not the way we run international affairs. We cannot unilaterally redraw national borders in Europe in 2020, you know, 22. This is not going to stand. And we saw that today from Boris Johnson. We need to see similar moves and similar resolve from other Western countries. Yaroslav, last question for you. We anticipate sure. uh, U.S. President Joe Biden to be announcing American sanctions on Russia here shortly. What do you think Canada should do? Um, look, Canada has been... Look, I'm not going to unduly criticize Canada. We, we have to work with what we have. 
we're a middle power at best. We're a, you know, we're a small power compared to the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, Canada caught up and joined the deterrence club um, about a week ago when it pledged a symbolic tranche of, of you know, lethal uh, defensive weaponry. Uh, even though the the UK and the US and Spain and Poland and others had had done so already, so we're we're playing catch up. But the main thing for us is to play a coordinator role as Canada to make sure that other Western countries, other NATO countries, are all on side. That there's no slippage. That there are no weak links. That's something Canada tends to do well because we don't have the same kind of baggage sometimes that uh, that Americans and British have. So I would like to see Canada play that kind of a role, kind of lead lead with its moral authority and make sure that there that there aren't any loose fish, you know, in the European community and, and in the NATO community to make sure that we all stand up and you know with one voice and with a you know with a united force. Well, we're watching it very closely. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. My pleasure. Anytime. All right, let's talk COVID travel restrictions now being reduced. Is it time to travel again? Lots of people are itching to pack their bags and hit the road. Long postponed vacays to Mexico and Hawaii. Adventure travel to exotic locations. Bucket list travel destinations. Lots of people are thinking about this. There are pent-up demand out there for sure. Now, which location is most in demand? What are the rules that you need to know as we get back to traveling again? All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Claire Newell, global BC travel expert and president of Travel Best Bets, and it's always awesome to have her here. Hi, Claire. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, there's a lot changing right now, and I think it's this is kind of a, a tough period to just navigate, but yeah. the I guess the big D-Day is February the 28th for for the next round of restrictions to be eased. On that day, that's when we're going to see the advisory to avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada to be lifted. So you might remember, Mike, it was actually lifted October 20th through right. until mid-December, just before Omicron went crazy. So we're returning back to that. And one of the other changes is... Uh, the fact that now, instead of doing the PCR or molecular test within 72 hours of your return flight or crossing the border back into Canada, you have the choice of doing the cheaper, faster, rapid antigen test. So I just want to clear up some one thing that came out today that was just regarding the whole clarification of that within 24 hours. So it's actually not within 24 hours. The, they are, Canada's doing what the U.S. is doing. It's basically within one calendar day. And just to give you an example, this is because of the flexibility of, and the, of opening of labs and pharmacies where you have to get these tests. Right. So if you can imagine if you have a Friday te- uh, uh, flight at 7 p.m., yeah. you know, the, the labs close on Thursday when you would need to get it. You know, probably at five. So you can actually have that done any time on the Thursday before a Friday, a Friday flight, whether that flight is at nine in the morning or it's at nine at night. Okay. Well, that's a really important distinction, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It was really important because for many people, just with the labs, it's tough. You know, you need to make an appointment and, and the timing might just not be right. And a lot of people don't want to leave it until right before their flight leaves. So that was really important. And that was clarified this morning. 
One of the other things, I think from a cost perspective for the government, they're stopping those tests upon landing in the Canadian airports. Right. At the moment, if you're flying in from anywhere other than the United States, you're going to be tested. And they're going back to random PCR testing on arrival. And, and that, I understand that. The government wants to just get a handle on, you know, how many are slipping through the cracks. Yeah. But the, another big change on that is you don't need to isolate when you're random testing results while you're waiting for them. So if, for example, I have one of my, my team who was doing a Caribbean cruise with her mom and she was flying through Toronto on the way home. She was randomly selected for her testing in Toronto. Right. So she was rushing to get to her connecting flight. She did not get her results back for six business days. Hmm. And so but she had she, to work she from was, home. But she was still allowed to t- get on her connecting flight and go home, though, yes. right? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Your random PCR testing, it might be at your first point of entry, not yeah. when you your final, if you are doing a connecting flight through Canada. So not to worry. Now, you don't. after February 28th, you won't need to wait in isolation until you get the test results because that's a long time to wait. I mean, we have the t- flexibility within our office to be able to work from home, but not everybody does. So I was really glad to see that change. I think the biggest for families, Mike, and I think this is why we've seen a real uptick in bookings for families, is that children 12 and under who are not vaccinated no longer need to isolate for 14 days on arrival. And you know that what that means is they can go back to school and activities upon their, their return. You know, when you're traveling with mom and dad who are vaccinated and they need to go back to work, that was a big you know, a big ask of families and and tough for many to navigate. Um, There's still no test exemptions for trips less than 72 hours. So if you're doing a quick trip to, you know, for a two night getaway, you still need to have all of the tests done. Uh, If you're crossing the border, still need to have that test done. It's a lot easier now that it's an antigen and a lot cheaper. However, I have to say, I was hoping that Canada would go kind of along the lines of the UK and Germany and France and Denmark where there's no test requirements, but Canada's right. pretty cautious as baby steps. You know how I often say if I'm a betting woman to you, yeah. what my yeah. best guess would be? I think Canada wants to get through spring break. They want to see how all that goes. Uh, and then if all goes well and there's no looming variant of concern, I think that the test might be lifted within weeks of that. Yeah, I really hope you're right. I think a lot of people are were happy to see some of these rules scaled back, but I've heard from a lot of people, and I know you probably have as well, from people saying, well, I wish they had gone a lot farther and just dropped these tests, period, or give us back that 72-hour exemption if we want to do a quick trip down to Seattle or across the border, wherever, you know, so yeah. we don't have to do these tests. Do you think they and- might uh, bring back that 72-hour exemption soon? I think that they will. I think they might wait until spring break. But you know what, Mike? The problem is, is that a test is a test. So if you test positive and you're in destination, you can't come back into Canada until the 10th day after a positive test. And that's a lot for a lot of people to to take. And they won't travel because of it. So uh, we are seeing definitely more people booking, especially people who have actually recovered. You know, they, they feel they're at less risk. But we are certainly seeing a lot of uh, of trips being put on the on the books for summer for sure, and even into fall and winter. It was really great to walk into 
to my office and some of the headlines that I was reading, one of the, the biggest ones that kind of drew my attention was the fact that Air Canada is going to be putting back a ton more capacity over the summer into not just domestic, but trans-border and international flights as well. So if you've been looking at something, whether that's to Europe or somewhere to the U.S., and it's been astronomical, it's likely because the limited capacity, obviously, no limited space, more expensive pricing, right? Now that they're starting to put that space back into the system, I hope that things will drop. I know I've been waiting to to get my son's return flight. You, you know, he's on an exchange uh, for university in Helsinki, Finland. Well, I've mm. never paid so much for a one-way flight to Europe in my life. It was 1500 wow. one way. Oh. <laughs> and so, oh. ouch. So I'm yeah. really hoping that with a more capacity in the marketplace, and it's not just Canadian airlines, Mike. It's all airlines. Because yeah. on that same day, February 28th, the D-Day that I'm saying, there is also the ban on international flights will be lifted for all the Canadian airports right. so that international air can resume as of that day at those airports that have been kind of stifled and not allowing those. That's really big news because a lot of the airlines that are not Canadian have been saying, okay, well, all of these restrictions and the expensive PCR tests required to go to Canada, no one's booking. We're not going to put flights on those routes. Well, that's all changing. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking travel with Claire Newell. Lots of phone calls to her. Let's get right to them. Jill in Cloverdale. Hi, Jill. Go ahead. Hi, thanks very much for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question is, we're planning a trip to Italy the end of May, and I've been looking at flights online, and they look quite high. So my question is, is it better to book before the 28th, or if more flights get put on after the 28th, can we expect pricing to come down? Mm. Claire. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Jill, I did notice that Air Canada was putting in more flights. I don't think that they're the only airline that is doing that. I would wait just a couple of weeks. But the D-Day of February 28th, when the restrictions comes in, uh, isn't really kind of your deadline for when to book and when not to. But within the next couple of weeks, expect that the airline will likely drop, uh, the airlines will likely drop their prices just a little bit to get people booking. Okay, interesting. Thank you very much. Good luck with that, Jill. Let's go to Jim on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Jim, go ahead. Hello there. Um, I'm just wondering, I've got a, about a month ago, I got a positive PCR test. So then there's something about just getting to go to Hawaii. Um, Can I just get a doctor's note and use that positive test? and go with that? Good question, Jim. Um, the, the reality is, unless you've got a PCR or other molecular test, like an RT lamp or a NAT, with showing that it's positive, it's not going to suffice. So you, if you've had it a month ago and you didn't get a molecular test, you need to get an antigen test done to fly to Hawaii. Okay. What kind of, didn't he, did he say you got, what kind of test did you get? Yeah, I got a positive PCR test. Okay. Does that, oh, okay. Yeah. That's what yeah. Thinking, so yeah. if you if you got a positive PCR test, you're good to go for 90 days going to the U.S., but you do have to have a doctor's note stating that 
you have recovered. Make sure that you have, it has your legal name on that doctor's note at the date that you tested positive and that you have recovered. Um, but keep a hold of that PCR test because as far as coming back to Canada, that is all you need to return for 180 days from the date of that positive mm. test. So bit of a golden ticket for you there, Jim. Okay. okay. Maybe it's, uh, yeah, you're kind of lucky in that way. I've not, I never thought I would say you'd be lucky that you actually caught COVID, but no, you know, I know. You know, if you test positive, maybe you got something in there. Mark and Delta. Hey, Mark, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Question for Claire. Um, assuming there's no new worldwide pandemic, say a year from now, uh, travel to New Zealand, can you foresee, um, it being just totally crazy with people traveling or what do you think? Like one year from now, I'm going to start planning. Yeah, I think that uh, we're going to see a real initial, you know, buzz, but I think that planning a year out is not a bad thing to do. I don't think it's going to be crazy. I think it's I think it's going to be doable. I do suggest for any bookings though because I'm planning like you a year out to certain destinations, make sure that it is fully refundable. Uh, and yeah. uh, if it's not, if you have a non-refundable portion mark, make sure that you get travel insurance to protect that part of the investment. One of the things that we've learned about this through this craziness is that things can change quickly. And the last thing you want to be doing is holding the bag. So unfortunately, I'm, I'm telling you now that you need to read the fine print just to make sure you, you know, all the ins and outs just in case things change. Yeah, make sure you're covered with that insurance for sure. Pat in Maple Ridge. Hi, Pat. Go ahead. Yes, good morning. We are booked on a cruise to Hawaii in April. Uh, recently, um, with the cruising, it was a level four. We've heard that the U.S. has dropped it to three, which that if ours, if Canada drops it, then our credit card insurance will kick in. That's uh, right. If it doesn't, then we have to purchase um, COVID insurance. Yeah, Pat, that's a, that's a, I wish I had more news on this. However, we did get a little glimmer of hope last week when these restrictions were being announced. They did address the fact that cruising would be, um, there would be more to come as far as announcements for, for cruising. It has to be addressed and it will likely be addressed well before your cruise to Hawaii in April because we have all of these cruise ships coming into Vancouver and with a level four advisory, you're not going to get a lot of Canadians booking that, which is such a shame. So I do expect that we will hear within the next couple of weeks regarding not only protocol going on and off of ships here within Canada, but also about that advisory. And I do expect that it will be dropped to a level three. My fingers and toes are crossed. Of course, I don't have the crystal ball, but that will really help so that your insurance can cover you through your Mm. credit card. Okay, Pat, good luck with that. Diane and Tawasin. Hi, Diane. Go ahead. Hi. I'm just curious about this random testing that is going on. We have family down in Point Roberts. Now, I know it was exempt for a while, but at this point, uh, to go down, visit family, go down, do some shopping, get some gas, now you come back through the border at, um, you know, the Boundary Bay uh, portal, and it's a random test. We've been down twice. Both times we've been hit. 
Uh, and I just, we're not going to go down. And I think there's a lot of people in our kind of situation that are not going to go either. I, we're not going to go until they take the random off. We're yeah. fully vaccinated, triple vaxxed. Why is that? It, it is really a silly kind of thing to be doing. Okay, we just got a minute left, Claire. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree and I understand, Diane. The, I will ask you this. How long did it take for you to do that random test? Within f- five, ten minutes? Oh, no. It took longer. You're talking to people in their 80s who do not, are not tech really savvy, and mm. it took a lot uh, longer than that, and uh, just kind of scary, and and I'm not going to, just not going to do it. And as I say, okay. I know Thank a you. lot Thank- of people Thanks, Diane. That. 30 seconds, Claire. Yeah, there's the random testing for most uh, at the airport and at border crossings for most people takes between five and 10 minutes. I've actually had to do it myself. And I know that it is scary for some people and they just don't feel comfortable. But let's hope that that, too, will be addressed shortly after spring break.